There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. I'm Mark Spencer, publisher of the Climactic Collective, a network of independent climate-engaged podcasts from Australia and New Zealand. Today's episode, though, takes us out of the South Pacific, to the UK. This is an episode shared to us from PCAN, the Place-Based Climate Action Network. It's a show produced by Climactic's Leeds correspondent, Simon Moore. A wave of local climate action has emerged across the UK, as activists and researchers, politicians and businesses join forces to tackle the climate crisis. This monthly series will share stories from a research project helping to power that wave by putting climate policy into action on the ground. In episode three, we talked to two key players in the PCAN story, Andy Goldson, professor of environmental policy at the University of Leeds, and Polly Cook, chief officer for sustainable energy and air quality from Leeds City Council. Andy set up the independent Leeds Climate Commission in 2017, which works closely with Leeds City Council. The Leeds Commission has led to the formation of 10 other climate commissions around the UK. Andy and Polly have also been instrumental in setting up one of the newest and largest yet, the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. Co-hosts Professor John Berry from Queen's University Belfast and Kate Locke from the University of Leeds talk to them about the thinking behind these novel climate partnerships. Andy discusses some of the ongoing challenges around ensuring the voices of all communities are heard and addressing climate action, and his vision for financial tools that let people invest in a green future for their city. Pauli explains the importance of a climate emergency declaration for the day-to-day work of a council, and describes their attempts to communicate hyper-locally so people can inspire each other to become more sustainable. Enjoy. And welcome to episode three of the Pecan Podcast. I'm John Barry. And I'm Kate Locke. And today we have an exciting show lined up for you. I'll be talking to a couple of people who have really paved the way for the Climate Commission model, which started out in Leeds before spreading across the UK. One of those is my co-host, Kate Locke, who is Communications and Policy Officer at the University of Leeds. Who else have you invited on for us today, Kate? Well, John, given this show is about local climate action, we knew we simply had to chat to Professor Andy Goulson from the University of Leeds, who has been dubbed the father of climate commissions, or is it the godfather? I'm not quite sure. He chairs Leeds Climate Commission, which was the first to be established four years ago, and that's led to the PECAN project and now 10 other climate commissions and counting. 
Wow, that's really impressive. What a legacy. The legend that is Andy. And who have we got beside Andy? Well, we wanted to hear from a city council's perspective about how these commissions help them achieve their aims and what it's actually like working on the um, coal face of climate action, if you'll excuse the pun. So we're going to be joined by Polly Cook, who is the Chief Officer for Sustainable Energy and Air Quality at Leeds City Council. Amazing. Well, what are we waiting for? On with the show. So, Andy and Polly, thank you both for joining us here on the PCAM podcast. Could I start by asking you, Andy, given you helped establish the first UK Climate Commission, how did it come into existence? Uh, and also related to that, how did the Place-Based Climate Action Network project come about? Um, thanks, John. Um, so Leeds Climate Commission grew out of a conversation across the city uh, in 2016, where we were wondering whether collectively we had the capacity to take on such a massive and overwhelming agenda. And also, you know, we were very aware of the limited capacities of the team in Leeds City Council to lead on this uh, and interested in whether, you know, enabling all of the other actors across the city to come together would be more effective. So we, we had an early conversation. Uh, there was an overwhelming level of support and interest and willingness to get involved. And uh, we took a few months and, and the commission grew out of that. So really, it was that combination of a lack of capacity, interest in a new style of partnership and collaboration and enabling working. And I suppose added on top of that, there was a degree of um, thinking that people in the city felt somewhat you know, disempowered or, or, you know, vulnerable to just, you know, taking the consequences of things at the global level. And, you know, they they fed down and impacted on people at the city and they some somewhat felt unable to respond to them. And there was a definite interest in bottom up approaches to, you know, activate and, and engage and give people more power to shape their own future more actively. Uh, so Leeds Climate Commission was up and running for, you know, two or three years. And then PECAN really grew out of that, but also out of the, the ESRC Centre for Climate Change, Economics and Policy, CSEP, which had been up and running for quite a while, uh, had expertise in policy and governance and economics and finance and those kind of things. And, and, you know, by bringing together Leeds Climate Commission with that activity and then expanding the network to bring in key people such as you, John, and, uh, and, and colleagues in Edinburgh, uh, PCAN grew out of that, really. That's great. Thanks, Andy. Polly, how did the um, how did the council feel about the prospect of a climate commission, and what sort of hopes and expectations did the council have for it? So I think when we declared a climate emergency, we were always kind of really clear that nobody can achieve net zero on their own, no one organisation. So we were always really keen to work across the city and work with all different players. And so for us, the climate commission kind of presented the perfect opportunity to bring the public sector, third sector and, you know, businesses together to achieve more. Um, so I think for us, the kind of fundamental principles around collaboration and also it provided a good sounding board, an independent voice and also a chart, you know, they've really helped us in terms of setting our scientific based targets. And I think it gives us more credibility with the public in the sense that it is done from outside of the council um, and there's somebody looking in. Andy, given your central role in setting up climate commissions, uh, it seems only right that we should ask you uh, what you think are their main selling points in terms of what they can achieve? 
I think a key thing is to build new capacities, uh, to bring in other actors, to energize them, to breathe in a level of positivity and a can-do spirit into the into the process. Um, I think when you bring those actors together, it's clear that there's all, often an awful lot happening already. Uh, so instead of people feeling like it's a standing start, you can actually build on everything that's already going on and be positive and celebrate that progress. I think that commissions have also got an independent role in tracking progress and you know, sometimes providing unpopular reports back to say, well, we're doing well, but we need to accelerate radically, uh, or there are some blockages that we need to address. And then I think that the role of the commission or commissions in general in, in guiding climate action at the local level and in prioritizing uh, key activities to say, well, there are lots of things we could be doing, maybe we can't do all of them, but here are some of the ones we're most ready to act on, uh, and that's where we should prioritize, and then we'll build from there. Uh, related to that, I think that you know, developing roadmaps and strategies and saying, you know, here's the range of everything we need to do over the next decade, for example. How do we prioritize those? How do we you know, really get moving in, in key priority areas? I think commissions have got a crucial role to play in that space. Polly, if I can ask you in terms of what roles do you see the commission playing in terms of driving local climate action? And in particular, if we can maybe talk about adaptation as well as mitigation, what the main roles of a commission might be in both of those areas? Okay, so in terms of the more general question, just about the kind of main aims, I think it's that peer-to-peer -peer learning that's across sector. So I think local authorities are really good at connecting with each other. But I think being able to connect outside of your comfort zone in the sectors, I think for all organisations is healthy. I think it's the evidence that helps us. So when we are lobbying national government or when we're developing policy, having an organisation that can help us gather evidence and can act as a critical friend. So when we're developing things to be able to take policies or strategies and, and get views very, very quickly um, has been really helpful. In terms of the sort of adaptation versus mitigation, I think, you know, the Leeds Climate Commission has been more focused on sort of mitigation. And I think the Yorkshire and Humber is, is kind of jointly focused on adaptation and mitigation. And I think the reason that probably works better at a regional level is if you think about, you know, flooding, for example, you know, a flood isn't caused and doesn't happen in Leeds. You know, there are things that happen outside of Leeds that trigger that flood, you know, in terms of the way that the, the river basin is managed. So to work on an issue that stretches beyond a local level probably doesn't make sense. And also some of the organisations we work with, so things like the Environment Agency or the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, aren't city focused and their organisational structures stretch beyond. And so that's where, you know, for things like the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission, I think it's one of the real strengths of it, that it mirrors other organisation structures. And then the local authorities are able to kind of step into line and work together underneath that structure. So it, it plays to other organisations' strengths. I'm really curious about the significance, Polly, you might place on the fact that, as I understand that you're leading the council's response on the climate emergency and how important are those declarations of climate and ecological emergencies in terms of your work? Absolutely fundamental, because I suppose across the whole council, anyone working within any department will know that the council has declared a climate emergency. We have this net zero ambition. 
and then it has more I suppose weight behind it rather than if we just had a more general low-level climate emergency action plan which lots of councils have had for many years it's a much more kind of strong ambition and the fact that it's been built into everything the council does every decision then you know it it makes it much easier to have that kind of better governance around it. So from my point of view, it's been really fundamental. So a question for Andy now. Um, well, we probably mentioned the uh, Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. Um, that's uh, not quite the latest in, in the stable because we've actually got another one about to go live as well in uh, Kirklees. But uh, I think that makes about 11 or maybe 12 now climate commissions. We're losing count in the UK. And which you're, you know, you're very much involved with. Andy, uh, maybe just uh, mention a little bit about your role with Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. And perhaps you could also tell us how, you know, how easy or difficult it's been to replicate the Leeds model elsewhere throughout the PECAN project. I think the logic of a commission, whether at the local level or the regional level, is, is increasingly clear. And as the agenda moves on to look at, you know, the real nitty gritty of how to deliver ambitious climate action within the next decade. I think that places are recognising that they need as much capacity as they can get. They need as much evidence as they can get and they need as much energy and commitment as they can get. And commissions tick all of those boxes. So the broad logic, I think, is absolutely clear. But in every instance, the idea of a commission needs to be adapted to fit to the, the, the place. You know, everywhere's got their own priorities, everywhere's got their own challenges and um, capacities and so on. So you know, it's crucial that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, that the commissions are, you know, developed and owned in a local context or a regional context. So as long as that's there, I think that it's, it's you know, it's increasingly obvious that we need them and hence the spread of the idea uh, and, and the, the number of commissions that are either established already or still coming through. And we've uh, got a, a kind of wider PECAN plus network now, haven't we? You want to say a little bit about that? Absolutely. And that, that's really lovely to see how many commissions or similar uh, are engaging and, and recognising there's a lot to be gained from, from talking and learning and sharing capacities. That network meets quarterly. Anybody who's interested in joining should get in touch with PECAN. We, we'd love to have you involved. Uh, and the Network Plus is, is really focusing on some of the key issues such as finance um, uh, an investment, which is a, a major challenge that we're all facing. So it makes perfect sense to to try and, you know, address that in a joined up way and learn from each other's experiences. And given, I mean, it is wonderful to see the, the, the network growing, Andy. And have you noticed, are there any particular patterns in the, the areas, the councils that are coming forward, or it's too early to tell, there's no particular pattern in terms of officers or the issues facing these local areas is just a it's just a diverse set of of different you know city and, and rural areas coming together or can you discern any patterns i think the common theme that runs throughout all of them is that everywhere has declared a climate emergency and now are really grappling with how on earth do we deliver on this and you know that's a major motivation but where that comes from initially whether it's from the council and the councillors have been you know, districts, boroughs, counties, cities, and now there are two regions with Yorkshire and Humber and Northeast Climate Coalition. Uh, you know, that that's the variation and that they all have a slightly different feel, but they all have the same agenda uh, and face the same challenges, uh, especially around the net zero area, as we all do at every scale, is how on earth do we 
mobilize the level of energy and activity and finance and commitment and innovation needed to deliver on you know a massively challenging agenda within the next few years which is why i think i don't usually believe in genetic engineering but if we could clone you andy given that you're in <laughs> such high demand i think we could achieve quite a lot on, on the low carbon uh, transition i but, think uh, that would be quite dangerous john <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend that well, <laughs> Uh, uh, definitely, I, I would tend to disagree, Andy, but I mean, we can come back again when we talk about cloning and cycling, perhaps, at a future <laughs> podcast. But Polly, I, I know you're also involved, you mentioned already, uh, the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. Now, as we understand it, this is the largest commission to date. And we're just wondering, you know, how optimistic are you that the commission model can work on such a large scale when there are such a large number of local councils that you're trying to work with and influence? I think with the job that I've got, you have to be optimistic by nature. So otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed the next day. So I am optimistic. I think we've had really good buy-in from the leaders um, across all the local authorities from day one. And they've you know, been along on that kind of lead up to developing it. We're really supportive. So that's a great starting point. We've got political and officer representation from each of the sub-regions. So I think the way the structure's been set up is really sensible. There's communication going on outside of the core meetings directly. So there, there are other kind of subgroups happening to make sure that people stay engaged. Um, so I think people like myself who are acting, kind of representing the West Yorkshire groups, have a real responsibility to make sure that that communication and engagement is two-way. Um, and that we keep people engaged and we we play to people's strengths across the different areas and, and bring them into the different working groups and things. So I think there's a lot of opportunities and that there's enough to be done for size not to be an issue in terms of the number of people available. Um, so, no, I think I think the size and scale is great. I think it allows local authorities maybe to focus on some of the project delivery that they've got happening at the moment and to allow maybe some of the things like the jobs and skills agenda to happen at a more strategic regional level, but to still have a kind of role and to play into that. So I think it, it complements the strength of the local and the regional from my point of view. I mean, a lot of the discussion on, on this area is around the race to net zero. Now, there have been some criticisms. I'm sure perhaps, Andy, you'd be aware. I was only listening to a podcast with uh, Kevin Anderson the other day who was casting doubt about net zero and it should be absolute zero. Um, and so I, I wonder, Andy, if you have any comment about that criticism of that, that it should be really absolute zero we're going for and not net zero. I think that we know the broad direction of travel and we could argue about some of the, the specifics and and some of those specifics are massively important. I'm not denying that. But I think the reality is that to get to any kind of zero within the next 10 years is a massive challenge. And there's so much that we just need to get on with now that, you know, that can run in parallel. Activity with getting moving can run in parallel with, with conversations about exactly where we need to get to and when. So that's not downplaying the significance of that argument, but it is saying we've got a lot to do and we just need to get on with it at the same time. I mean, yeah, it strikes me as a, it's a little bit of like, you know, not allowing the perfect become the enemy of the good, um, you know, in some ways. But Kate, sorry, you wanted to get in there. Yeah, well, PCAN has produced a, a suite of net zero roadmaps for Leeds and also for um, Belfast and Edinburgh, the uh, core PCAN cities. So I just wanted to ask both of you, just looking a little further ahead, we're talking about net zero and Leeds has a target to be net zero by 2030, which is an incredibly ambitious target. 
And, um, you know, it sounds like a little while away, but in many ways, you know, it's, it's really not. It's approaching very fast. So what are each of your hopes for some big changes that we can see in Leeds over the next couple of years that we can really start to accelerate and build momentum towards net zero? Polly, should we go with you first? Okay, so Leeds has been quite successful recently in terms of securing quite a lot of grant funding for retrofitting of housing and sort of public sector estate. And it's still a drop in the ocean in terms of what needs to be done as a city. But the way that I see that acting as a catalyst for change is about really beginning to normalise some of the different technologies and really developing those kind of case studies with individuals living in these new type of homes who can then talk to other people rather than just seeing kind of brochures and, and salesmen trying to sell things, actually hearing somebody say, you know, I've, I've got a heat pump, I've got solar panels, um, I've insulated my house and this is the difference it's made, this is what it looks like. And I, for me, I think that is really fundamental because at the moment I think there's a real gap in understanding with the public in terms of what needs to be done. I, I think a lot of the public wouldn't know that fundamentally we need to move away from gas you know, lots of the public would know that cars are polluting and not great, but I'm not sure that that same understanding in the domestic environment. So I think that whole engagement and, and public side is really, really important. Um, and then obviously the other kind of, I suppose, key side is about transport and how we really make that shift and make people prepared to make that decision to leave their car at home, to use public transport. The more people that use it, the more effective it becomes because there's more demand you know, less cars on the road, the safer it becomes for active transport. So again, there's a big shift around kind of public engagement again, and making sure that we bring everyone with us. Um, and then I suppose the other one, which doesn't get talked about as often, is around food. Um, you know, we talk about scope three emissions and, and food is a massive contributor. So I think, again, at a regional level, there's a lot we can do in starting to look at actually how self-sustaining the region can be. Um, what does that mean in terms of change of habits and consumption? And also things, um, you know, Professor Ophelia at the University has done some fantastic work actually getting us a baseline in terms of what, what do we produce, what do we consume as an area, and then starting to develop that into an action plan and strategy. Again, I think is really fundamental that we don't just focus on the built environment and transport, but we start to look beyond at some of our consumption habits. Thank you. Thank you, Polly. That's great. And um... Andy, do you have anything to add to that? What are your hopes for action in Leeds over the next couple of years? I think we have two big challenges, at least. The first one is around legitimacy and buy-in and inclusion of different communities. I think that we in the climate world talk to one another quite a lot and, and preach the converter quite a lot. I, th I think we can sometimes overestimate the extent to which everyone agrees with us. Uh, and I think we've got a big job to do in selling and persuading and involving and listening to different communities who maybe don't see it as such a priority uh, as, as we do. Part of that, I think, has to be telling a positive story and selling a vision of what a, a positive leads would look like that is, you know, net zero or, or more and, and climate resilient and that people get excited about and think that's the kind of city I want to live in. I want my street to look like that. I want my journey to work to feel like that. I want my you know, the, my job to, to do these kind of things and, and the green spaces in the city to, to, to be like this and the community to act like this, you know. And there are loads of good examples that people get really excited about. And I think if we can work around those, then some of the legitimacy and the buy-in will, will follow. 
The second side is a bit more kind of nitty gritty, which is about finance and investment. I would love to see us in the city have a route to enable local people to invest in their city, either financially or in terms of their energy and commitment, and, and for the city to kind of feel like it's fueling its own transition uh, and benefiting from its own transition so that you can, you know, swim in the swimming pool that your investment in solar panels helped to heat and you can meet the job that you helped to create and travel on the bus that you've helped to fund in, in some way. And I think that, you know, that financial innovation is so crucial and is a big feature in PECAN's work. You know, if Leeds was pioneering that and really mobilising finance in that way, that would be really exciting. And as, as a last one, just on a personal perspective, I would love for Leeds to see much more effort in the nature-based solutions area, much more green infrastructure rather than grey, you know, concrete and steel-based infrastructure. And I think we have a massive opportunity if HS2 comes into the south of the city and all of the urban regeneration happens around the south side of the city, wouldn't it be lovely to see that pioneering nature-based solutions and for that to be, you know, both green in the sense of low carbon and, and so on, but also green uh, as you walk around it and as you feel it and live it. I think that, that that is something that people get really excited about. And there's very little opposition to from people. You know, people get excited about tree planting and about mm -hmm. parks and natural areas and riverfronts and all of this kind of stuff. So so maybe the three of those can all feed off each other to generate a, a really positive leads in, in the not too distant future. Sounds great. Just picking up, Andy, on uh, a couple of points that you made there, but also to put the question to, to Polly, I think there is an issue that, you know, we've often spoken about before. The tendency is that the, on the legitimacy question is that the climate transition or ecological is seen at the, at the purview of either the educated, guilty middle classes or elites and, you know, technocrats, which, of course, are not a very positive framing. But also the importance of, of that, you know, positive vision for the future that climate action can deliver benefits and to not see that climate action as some sort of uh, sacrificial uh, negative where it is sometimes portrayed as either the economy or the climate and so on. I'm just wondering from both of your perspectives um, whether you can see links with, you know, new initiatives happening at the municipal level, picking across England of community wealth building, for example, has been pioneered by by Preston, uh, and if you have any comments about maybe other aspects of that coming into the work of the Leeds Climate Commission, or it's something that we need to take into more account in developing climate action, is you know seeing that this has to be around you know relocalizing the economy perhaps, or maybe leveraging the public procurement budget of councils, trusts, NHS trusts, and so on in this decarbonisation vision. So is that connection between climate action and these new local economic development models, particularly, as I say, that one uh, community wealth building? I think green bonds is a really exciting development that's going on and really catching on around the UK at the moment. And, you know, where those can be based on community investment, uh, I think that in a way that is the practical manifestation of what you were just saying, John, about, you know, local communities investing in in local projects that all sounds a little league of gentlemen but um <laughs> uh it's exciting and people get really involved in it and you know we hear one of our refrains that we hear a lot of is that there are residents of leeds have two billion pounds sat in their ices well imagine if you could mobilize that to do good things in the city not only climate maybe 
Uh, I think that that would transform the way that people connect with their city and, and feel about their city and re-energize that municipalization and, and mutualization of, of you know, urban development, which used to be really popular. It's a key part of our civic history, but somehow it's faded away a little bit. But it seems through green bonds and community investment that there's a real chance to reinvigorate it now. This is all great. And, you know, this week we actually have a great opportunity with Leeds. Um, BBC Radio 5 Live are focusing on Leeds as a city on a mission to get to net zero. And here at the Commission, we're starting a campaign called Leeds Acts Together to show how organisations across Leeds are committing to tackling the climate crisis together. And I was wondering what you both think we need to do going forwards. We've talked a lot about communication and being positive and, you know, communicating that vision. But what do you both think we need to do going forwards to make sure we're engaging diverse communities across Leeds and not just the usual suspects? So we've got a few strands to our kind of comms and engagement, but one of them is to do more hyper-local communication. So I think traditionally we've always done things at a city level um, and use the sort of standard comms channels. And what we've done now is mapped out more of the local social media, so things like local Facebook groups and networks, so that if something happens in an area, so for example, if there's a housing retrofit scheme, actually you can tell people about it locally, they can see it, they might know somebody that lives in one of those houses. And I think that sort of change of style of communication engagement is really important. And I mentioned earlier about the public sector decarbonisation and we're doing sort of lots of work in leisure centres and schools. So one of the things that I'm really keen to have is a lot of sort of signage and information about what is going on at that site. So that if you arrive at one of these schools, you know that it's got a heat pump powering, it's got solar panels on the roof and you link that to the climate emergency so that you can almost walk around the city and you will be told, over and over again there's a climate emergency this is the action that's been taken and um, whereas at the moment we've done media campaigns but there aren't necessarily those kind of permanent reminders mm-hmm. and i think that will have the double benefit of one being more permanent for people but also reaching out to different communities and reaching people that you don't normally reach we have all the standard sort of climate emergency newsletters and twitter feeds and things but the risk is you're preaching to the converted and so and the other thing we've done is try to partner up with other organisations. And obviously, we're really lucky we've got the Climate Action Leads lottery bid happening, which is very much about grassroots. Um, and so we're really keen to work with them as well as they start to develop. So I think anything that's more community based um, rather than citywide is, is the way forward from my point of view. Thanks, Polly. I think I think that's a great answer, and and that's a, a really really good suggestion about the hyperlocal communication. It's something we're going to um, make sure that we're doing here with the commission too. Andy, did you have anything to add to that? Just to say, I think people need to know that a it's possible, and and it's great to see other examples from your community or from your sector or from your city of other people already doing what you think you need to do and showing that it's possible and getting their positive feedback from it as well. And, you know, as as Polly said, hearing from a neighbour or a friend in your local community that they've done something, you know, retrofitted your house or switched your electric vehicle or changed their travel patterns or whatever it is, and it's worked for them. I think that, that that's contagious, that, that positivity and that uh, you know, can-do attitude. It's it's easy to do that from a distance and to kind of implore people to do it. But I think that's it's clear that that's not always that effective. Much much more effective to hear it from someone that you know 
and respect and can you know connect with what they've done in terms of you know empowering other people to act can i just give a really practical example of when that's happened recently so we've got our electric van schemes for businesses and so we've said to all the businesses you come up with your own case study you tweet them via your own social media you know we'll retweet and support and so we've had a plumber who's used the electric van he's made a six minute youtube video i think within hours of it being released it's had something like 200 views literally within hours um and obviously the people that are linking in with him a lot of them are interested in what he does from a plumbing point of view so you've reached a whole network of people that we wouldn't have been able to reach we wouldn't have had those channels and i think that just shows that actually are much better to ask other people to communicate what they're doing rather than always doing everything from a centralist point of view. But that was a really powerful case study that's happened within the last week or so. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to check that one out. Great stuff. And thank you, Andy, for perhaps giving us a new tagline, the Pecan Do Project Spirit. I like that idea. <laughs> Not just can do, but pecan do. <laughs> uh, and I think you're both absolutely right in terms of showing rather than telling. That idea of giving people tangible examples of what climate action is, because often it's very, very abstract. But just before we finish, we do like to finish on a bit of a light note, just to show that uh, while you're both eminent professionals and climate action advocates, you're also both uh, human. And I'm sure given <laughs> lockdown restrictions, uh, and hopefully they're easing now, particularly across the water, where you are, they're easing quicker than they are here in, in Northern Ireland. But we're coming up to summer, and I'm sure like us all, you both deserve a break. So Kate and myself are just wondering uh, if you could both paint us a picture of what your ideal holiday would look like. Ah, well, I'm lucky. I've got it coming up. I'm off to the Highlands in Scotland in two weeks' time to uh, stay in a place I've been to a few times before. We're in the mountains with a lock and otters in the lock and yeah friends and family around and you know great food and and great nature so yeah i i already know what that feels like two weeks time i'm there <laughs> so very similar so i really enjoy holidays we've had in the uk as a family so again in scotland or northern ireland or, or wales we've had some of our best family holidays tend to be really relaxed out in nature where there's water for the kids to run and play mountains to climb just keeps everyone happy so yeah i'd agree with andy's vision on that one great to see that you're supporting the local economy with staycations and andy make sure you drop off to edinburgh to jamie for the drop of ishkabaha on your way up to the highlands oh that would be fantastic yeah doesn't need any persuading to do that and in case anybody listening didn't catch our last episode, we did touch on that in our previous episode of the Pecan podcast when we interviewed Jamie Brogan from um, the Edinburgh Climate Commission. There was a whole whiskey conversation going on in that one. And uh, yoga, the one before. But anyway, holidays this time. Um, I don't know about you, John. I, I'm certainly up for just somewhere quiet by the sea, in, you know, here in the UK is, is all I, it's, I'd be really happy with. What about you? Anywhere without Zoom or MS Teams, <laughs> I'm good. Well, I think um, that's about all we've got time for this time on the Pecan Podcast. So, um, Andy and Polly, thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Kate and John. And that's a wrap. Well, that was another fascinating conversation. We hope you all enjoyed listening to it. 
This has been an episode three of the Pecan Podcast with me, John Barry. And with me, Kate Locke. We're a brand new podcast, so any support you can give us is much appreciated. Subscribe to the show, give us a rating or recommend us to your friends and colleagues. It all really helps. That's all we have time for today, folks. We'll see you all again next month, or we'll speak to you at least. Take care. The PCAM podcast is brought to you by the Place-Based Climate Action Network, a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council and based at the LSE, University of Leeds, Queen's University Belfast and the University of Edinburgh. Our producer and editor is Simon Moore. Our music comes from Lloyd Richards. And our thanks go to Mark Spencer and the Climactic Collective for hosting this podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time, right here on the PCAM Podcast. Bye.